You're listening to TIP. Well, return stacking is the idea of basically layering a new set of returns on top of your existing portfolio. So we call it stacking because you're trying to stack the returns of a hopefully second diversifying source of returns on top of what you already have. It's sort of an A plus B equals C equation. On today's episode, I'm joined by Corey Hofstein, who's the co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research, which is a quantitative investment and research firm that manages strategies that implement return stacking. During this episode, Corey discusses what return stacking is, how the strategy works, and goes over the different ways that it can be implemented and the various portfolio solutions that it provides. He also talks about what factors impact the effectiveness of the strategy and the reasons behind the poor performance of certain return stacking ETFs since 2021, how to mitigate risk when the strategy breaks down, and so much more. I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since Logan Kane brought up the strategy in his last episode. So I hope you all really enjoy today's conversation with Corey as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Corey Hofstein. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for coming on today, Corey. I'm super excited for today's conversation because one of my recent guests talked about return stacking in a previous episode, and he mentioned your firm, Newfound Research. And so I really want to dive into it with you today. But first, I'm wondering, how did you first become interested in researching about return stacking? So return stacking at its core, and I really appreciate the opportunity. And it's always exciting to hear when someone else is talking about the work you're doing. So I appreciate Logan talking about it. Return stacking is this idea that actually goes back to the 1980s. PIMCO, one of the largest investment managers in the world, came up with this idea they call portable alpha. And it was really popular among institutions in the early 2000s and remains popular for large, sophisticated institutions in terms of how they implement their portfolios. But it's not something that ever really came down to the retail financial advisor or individual retail level. My suspicion is because to implement it, it typically requires you trading all sorts of derivatives like futures and swaps. And a lot of that stuff is either to operationally difficult or too difficult from a compliance perspective. So it never really made its way down. So that's that's a little historical context. But I think what's more important is why would you care about this? Why did I get interested in this? Well, for me, the firm that I manage at Newfound Research, we're a quantitative investment manager, and we have a huge focus on diversification. What we try to bring to the market is diversifying alternative strategies. And one of the things that we saw in the 2010s is right after 2008, there was a large appetite for introducing alternative diversifiers. But what that ultimately means for most investors is if they hold stocks and bonds and they want to buy something like managed futures. They need to choose what to sell before they can buy. So they have to sell some stocks, sell some bonds, buy some managed futures. So you have this ultimate problem of what am I funding my position with? What am I selling to buy the alternative? And 
in doing that in the 2010s, it was an incredibly frustrating period because it was one of the best periods of returns for a very traditional stock bond portfolio. So early in the 2010s, post the 2008 crisis, people really wanted diversification. They started to introduce the alternatives. And then as the decade waned on, those alternatives were a larger and larger drag on their portfolio compared to whether if they had just held stocks and bonds. And so there's a lot of frustration. They liked the diversification, but they didn't like the relative underperformance that they were realizing. And so what I sort of saw was this opportunity with my collaborators on this. It was if we could take this idea of portable alpha, which is let me get my stock and bond position using some derivatives that are a lot more capital efficient. I don't need, if I want $100 of stocks, I don't need to use $100. I can use $10 and buy a futures contract to get that $100 of stock exposure. And I can use the remaining 90 to invest in alternatives. You don't need to do that proportion, but just as an example, if we could package that up in a mutual fund or an ETF and create these building blocks for people, it would allow them to, instead of having to make this either or decision about their core stocks and bonds and the alternatives they might want as diversifiers, it allows you to say and. It allows you to have your stocks and bonds and overlay your portfolio with these diversifying alternatives that we think can really help during environments like 2022 when stocks and bonds go down simultaneously. And I want to get into some of the different products that are available, because I think that's one of the cool things was back a couple decades ago, there weren't really any products where the average investor could implement it. It was mostly just institutions that were capitalizing on this. And then firms like yourself got into it. And now there's some ETFs that make it available for all of us. But for our listeners to make it very clear what return stacking even is, can you kind of explain it in simple terms, what it is and then how it works? Absolutely. In the simplest terms possible, return stacking is the idea of basically layering a new set of returns on top of your existing portfolio. So we call it stacking because you're trying to stack the returns of a hopefully second diversifying source of returns on top of what you already have. It's sort of an A plus B equals C equation. The way it's implemented, unfortunately, is kind of sophisticated. It requires using derivatives behind the scenes and that sort of stuff. But the real basic concept, the real potential benefit to investors is the opportunity to add a new diversifying source of returns on top of what they already have, hopefully enhancing long-term returns, increasing diversification and helping reduce drawdowns. So the one really cool thing that I read about this strategy, and this is where it hit home for me, was that it was the Cliff Asnes paper that talks about how if you're 100% equity, then you should be for a leverage strategy where it's the leverage 60-40, I think his paper argued, because you actually get a higher return than the 100% equities, but for lower risk. And so that just blew my mind, honestly, that, that something like that was possible because it almost seems like it's a free life. Yeah, what Cliff Asnes, the founder of AQR, wrote this paper called Why Not 100% Equities? And it was in response to another article that had been written talking about, well, why don't institutions and endowments who have these very long dated goals, well, why don't they just put 100% of their money in equities? Why hold bonds? Why hold anything else? And what Cliff pointed out is that well, if we go back to modern portfolio theory, what modern portfolio theory tells us to do is find the most diversified portfolio and lever it up. And Cliff showed that actually if you take a portfolio that looks very close to a 60-40 and lever it up 1.5 times, 
historically, you would have had a higher return and about the exact same risk as equities. And to your point, right, they call diversification the only free lunch in markets. It largely is. There's no benefit really to foregoing diversification, but often you have to use leverage to really unlock those benefits, right? Most people would think 100% equities, when you go to a 60-40, you're de-risking your portfolio, right? You're selling stocks to buy bonds that are less risky. The only way a 60-40 can compete, even though it's more diversified, the only way it can compete with 100% equities over the long run is by levering it back up to the same amount of risk. And, and Cliff found that that was about 1.5 times. Interestingly, a product launched that replicates exactly that from Wisdom Tree. It's their US Efficient Core ETF, NTSX. I think that launched in 2018. And Jeremy Schwartz, their director of research there, published a follow-on piece. So Cliff, I believe, wrote his initial piece in the early 90s. Jeremy then said, okay, let's see if that's held true for the last 30 years. And lo and behold, it continued to hold true for the 30 years out of sample after Cliff had written his piece. So I think right diversification is one of those really evergreen ideas. I think it is remarkable to look back and backtest the different funds and actually prove to yourself that it works and that this is something that now can be easily implemented by the average investor. And so I want to get into the different ways that someone could use this strategy to their benefit, because I guess it could have my understanding is there's a couple ways that it can benefit a portfolio. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, is one to enhance returns and then other to diversify. So could you talk about how each of those work? Yeah. And if we get lucky, hopefully we can do both at the same time, right? That's the holy grail there. So we talked a little bit about replacing that 100% stock with the levered 60-40. So what we'll call a 90-60, you take your 60-40, you lever it up 1.5 times, you get 90% bonds, 90% stocks, 60% bonds, excuse me. That portfolio over the long run seems to have a better return profile for the same amount of risk as all equities. And effectively what you're doing, right, is you are layering those bond returns on top of an equity portfolio. So, right, so you could say you're stacking bonds on top of equities and for every dollar you invest, you're getting a dollar 50. That keeps the same risk profile, but those extra bonds serve as a secondary diversifying source of returns that enhances the long-term return profile of that strategy. Now it's not without its risks, right? A 1.5 times levered 60-40 portfolio did quite poorly in 2022, right? When stocks and bonds went down at the same time, that's not a great time to be levered stocks and bonds. So it's not like this is a purely free lunch. There are the risks. One of the things you can consider though is, well, how can I use this same concept to introduce a new diversifying asset class? So let's go back to this levered 60-40 portfolio. And and let's wrap it in an ETF, right? NTSX is the ETF from Wisdom Tree that does this. Well, if I have $100 and I want to get the exposure of a 60-40, I could take 60 of my dollars and buy stocks and 40 of my dollars to buy bonds, right? The other thing I could do with the existence of this ETF is take $66 and buy NTSX. Let's do the math here. NTSX gives you 90% stocks, 60% bonds. Well, 90% of 66 is $60 of stocks, 60% bonds in NTSX times $66 is 40 of bonds. So we took $66, put it in this ETF, and we got 60-40 exposure, but we have $33 left over. 
of our hundred. So then the question is, well, what do you do with the $33? I don't want to be prescriptive here. People can do whatever they want. I have certain views as to what you should do. But if we know, for example, stocks and bonds tend to go down at the same time during inflationary impulses, one of the questions we might ask is, well, can we buy something with that $33 that might do quite well during inflation? So I'm, I'm a large proponent of managed future strategies. These are strategies that trade equities, bonds, currencies, and commodities, long and short. Historically, have done very well during inflationary impulses. A low correlation of stocks and bonds, on average positive returns, have done well during equity crises. I really like the strategy. So what we can do is maybe take that $33 and buy managed futures. And so what you're left over with, if you do that, two thirds of your money in NTSX and say one third in a managed futures ETF like DBMF, your net portfolio looks like 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and 33% managed futures. You have more than 100% exposure. You have 133%. And what I would argue is ideally a more diversified portfolio than what you started with, hopefully reducing drawdowns, reducing volatility, and potentially enhancing returns. That was such a great explanation. And I'm wondering, what about someone who already has 100% equity portfolio? They're in their accumulation phase, so they don't even have a 60-40 portfolio right now. How would they think about implementing a return stacking fund into their portfolio? And what allocation should it maybe optimally have? Right. So this is where you can look beyond, you know, just like the 60-40. To go back to the the first point, right? You could just sell some of your stocks and buy something like NTSX. And effectively, you have introduced bonds on top of your existing stocks. There are funds out there that provide you exposure to equities and layer managed futures on top. So there's two mutual funds, one from Abbey Capital, one from Standpoint that give you exposure to equities and layer managed futures on top. There are funds from PIMCO that'll give you for every dollar you invest a dollar of bonds and a dollar of equities. So there's all these funds now that you can mix and match and say, I, I want to retain this underlying profile and layer some extra diversifying returns on top. What I would suggest though, is that if you are an aggressive investor pursuing growth, you might be better off actually not holding 100% equities, right? You might be better off holding 80% equities, 20% bonds, and 20% managed futures. And it seems contradictory, but by actually reducing the equities to make room for other diversifying asset classes, you can actually ideally move yourself sort of up into the left on on that risk return profile, get better internal portfolio diversification, not take that long run risk of the, hey, there's going to be a 50% drawdown at some point in holding this portfolio, hopefully more diversified without necessarily sacrificing the returns. Yeah. So it could involve then selling a portion of your equities. Say someone's just in a very simple ETF portfolio and they would sell some of their stock exposure, buy some of the like the NTSX or one of those products that are the leveraged 6040. And then that would give them the diversifier. Then from there, they could take that extra money and do something like commodities or some other diversifying asset. Exactly. At the risk of getting in trouble with my compliance department, the fund we launched gives you for every dollar you put in, it's a dollar of bonds plus a dollar of managed futures. So if you were 100% equity, what you might consider is I'm going to sell 10 or 20% of that and put 10 or 20% into our ETF. What that would effectively do is leave you with 80 to 90% equities, the remainder in bonds 
plus the equivalent amount of a managed futures overlay. So again, it's about trying to incorporate more diversification and using leverage to unlock the benefits of that diversification. So you're not necessarily just de-risking yourself. You're maintaining the same risk level and hopefully moving to a higher return. That's great. And that's super exciting that your ETF just launched. I was looking into it today before the interview and there are a few other ETFs out there. So I wanted to get into this with you, the construction of them, because they're all a bit different. Some use more leverage than others. So I kind of wanted to go over some of the main ones with you talking about that and then also the bond future versus stock future component, because to me, I didn't understand why some funds would use a bond futures versus others would use stock futures. Is one more optimal? Yeah, these are great questions. So there are a large no, actually, compared to the grand scheme of things, there's really not a large number of offerings in this space, but there's a couple of funds that have, have been launched that I think are particularly interesting. So let me try to give some high level. So Wisdom Tree has a series of levered 60-40 portfolios. They have a US 60-40, so US equities plus treasuries. They have international equities plus treasuries and emerging markets plus treasuries. They also have a portfolio that for every dollar you give them, they will give you a dollar of US equity, excuse me, 90 cents of US equity and 90 cents of gold. So for people who maybe want some gold exposure, that's a way you can retain your equity and get some gold. I mentioned Standpoint and Abbey, who each give you equities plus managed futures layered on top. Uh, I mentioned my fund that'll give you bonds plus managed futures layered on top. Then there's PIMCO that has a large series of these. What PIMCO does is they believe that they can generate alpha through bond security selection. So they're going to buy a basket of bonds and then give you the equities by buying equity futures. So for example, they might say, hey, we're really good at buying bonds. We think we can beat the bond benchmark Barclays Ag. We're going to actively buy that bond portfolio and then we're going to buy S&P 500 futures, or we're going to buy Russell 2000 futures. The bond portfolio might be a core bond portfolio, or they might have a version that's say long-term corporate bonds. So they have a couple different flavors of it, which sort of goes into your question of, okay, what are we using here? Are we using, are we buying bonds and overlaying with S&P futures? Are we buying equities and overlaying with treasury futures? Like why does Wisdom Tree do it one way and PIMCO does it another? So there's sort of two important answers here. First, the first point is PIMCO thinks they can add value in picking bonds, right? They think they can pick individual bonds, add some alpha. They have a great track record of doing it, so I'm not going to second guess them here. I'll let other people do their evaluation. So to them, they're saying the passive part we want to give you is in the equities. We want to be active in the bonds. Therefore, every dollar you give us, we have to spend that dollar buying bonds and we're gonna give you S&P 500 futures exposure on top. Let's pause there for a second and talk about the tax efficiency of that because it's absolutely horrendous. You're gonna get ordinary income from the bonds and then the S&P futures need to be rolled every single quarter. So you're selling them and buying a new futures contract, which is going to realize any capital gains and losses. Those capital gains and losses are gonna get taxed at what's called 60-40 tax treatment, 60% long-term, 40% short-term, which means if you're buying this as a long-term buy and hold way and to get equity exposure, you're going to be taxed out the nose. This is a horrible way to get equity exposure. So what I would argue is if you're going to do that, it really needs to be in a qualified account, or you need to massively discount the returns for the taxes you're paying because you're going to pay a lot of taxes 
right? Every year the market's up, right? You're basically paying 60, 40 on, on that year's gains. So it's a lot of taxes to be realizing. Let's compare that to Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree says, we're not going to try to pick anything. We're just going to be completely passive. Every dollar you give us, we're going to buy 90 cents of equities. And they buy basically the 500 largest equities. And then we're going to use the remaining 10 cents as collateral to buy 60 cents notional of treasury futures. Well, how does that differ? Well, first, it's an ETF wrapper. I'm going to assume, hopefully, your, your listeners know that ETFs are much more tax efficient under certain conditions than mutual funds. But basically, by buying the stocks within the ETF wrapper, Wisdom Tree can manage that portfolio. So there's hopefully zero capital gains realized on any of those equities. You basically defer all your capital gains until when you sell the ETF, at least on the equity side. On the bond side, okay, we're getting these treasury futures. How tax efficient are those? Well, they also have 60-40 tax treatment, and they're going to roll four times a year. So any gains are taxed at 60% long-term, 40% short-term. Doesn't sound attractive until you realize the other opportunity, right, is that you would actually buy the treasury bonds, in which case you're getting taxed at the federal ordinary income rate, which is going to be higher than 60-40. So from a tax efficiency perspective, the Wisdom Tree product actually is arguably as tax efficient as you can get with equities and a much more tax efficient way of buying treasuries. So highly tax efficient, but not trying to add any alpha. PIMCO, highly tax inefficient, but because they think they can add some alpha. And so asset location is really going to matter. You have to sort of think, is this tax efficient? Is it not? One of the easiest ways you can just go to Morningstar on their website and look up the tax efficiency of the fund. If it's not tax efficient, if it's got a big tax drag, probably needs to go into one of your qualified accounts. Okay, that was very helpful. And then how does that compare to your ETF then? Yeah, so our ETF, what we are aiming to do is for every dollar you give us, it's called the Return Stacked Bonds and Managed Futures ETF, ticker RSBT. For every dollar you give us, we're trying to give you a dollar of core fixed income exposure plus a dollar of a managed futures strategy. To achieve that, we're going to take a dollar and we're going to buy about 50 cents of an ag ETF and use and then get another 50 cents of bond exposure through treasury futures. So like Wisdom Tree, those treasury futures are probably more tax efficient than if we were just buying treasuries. The ag ETF is a pretty passive vehicle. We will end up passing on any ordinary income that comes from that ETF but should be about as tax efficient on the bond side, if not slightly more than someone else's existing bond exposure. Managed futures, on the other hand, has been and never will be a tax efficient strategy, right? This is an alternative strategy that's trading commodities. It's trading currencies. There's certain things we can do way behind the scenes. So for example, to trade commodities, we have to set up what's called a Cayman blocker. The commodities are traded in that Cayman blocker. Any gains and losses get passed up as ordinary income, but it prevents the creation of a K-1. There's all sorts of things we're trying to do to create tax not benefits, but to smooth out the ownership process. This is something almost every managed futures fund does. But at the end of the day, managed futures has never been tax efficient. That said, let's go back to that example of a 100% equity investor who sells some of their equity to buy this strategy. Well, maybe the 60-40 investor, because then it's at least equal. So 60-40 investor sells some bonds to buy our ETF. What I would say is if the 60-40 is like your cake, the managed futures part is like adding some icing. Yes, taxes will scrape some of that icing off, but there will still be icing there. 
right? Ideally. And so it's one of those, even after taxes, hopefully you are left with a more diversified, higher return portfolio than you would have been if you didn't layer that on top. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. And then I just want to go to the extreme example where why wouldn't someone just lever up all the way? Why wouldn't they sell all of their stock portfolio and just go in 100% this leveraged fund? Yeah. So the way I I would phrase it, right? If you were to say, okay, I've got 100% stocks and I just really want to hit the gas. Let's do 100% stocks and layer on 100% managed futures and layer on all this other stuff. Leverage creates path dependency. So what do I mean by that? Well, leverage, you're inherently borrowing money. And so you have to post a certain amount of collateral to be able to borrow that money. If the market starts to move against you, you have to keep paying up collateral. So if you are, say, let's go to the extreme, 10 times levered, you have a dollar and you're making it act like $10 and the market goes down 10%, you will have wiped out your entire portfolio, right? Less extreme if, if you have a portfolio that's levered up three times and the market goes down 33%, you will have wiped out all your collateral. So you have to ask the question, like, what's the prudent amount of leverage to use to make sure you never hit that point where all your collateral is wiped out? It is very, I think, first of all, 
person dependent and portfolio dependent. The more diversified the portfolio, in theory, the more leverage that can be applied. But I think there's like the optimal number that comes out from mathematical studies. And then there's the prudent number, which tends to be far less than that, right? That's something you can probably stick with and will probably still be very beneficial versus the unlevered portfolio. And I guess when I was thinking about this strategy, I was wondering for a buy and hold investor who maybe doesn't sell investments, uh, they just want to yeah, keep this long term outlook. Is this something that can be implemented with that or would there be times where you get out of it completely? So I think this is a way of rethinking how you build your portfolio, right, to make it align much more with the tenets of modern portfolio theory or the way institutions have been doing this. This is how I strategically allocate. My portfolio actually very much looks like 80% stocks, 20% bonds, and like 30% managed futures. I lever up my portfolio. That's how I invest. I actually would probably prefer to have a little less equity and a little bit more bonds and managed futures. I'm working towards that, but I have some tax taxable account issues I got to work through. But I think to go back to our example of, you know, your 60-40 investor versus someone who buys a mix of NTSX, the levered 60-40 and DBMF managed futures, I think there's a strong argument that you could just hold those two, two thirds in NTSX, one third in DBMF. And that's a great strategic all weather portfolio. You're 33% levered. And arguably, it should, based on sort of the historical numbers and, and understanding the way these positions diversify each other, hopefully enhance your returns over the long term, as well as help manage risk during certain environments like 2022. Similarly, if you have a 60-40 and you sell some of the bonds to buy our ETF, ideally, it'll do the same thing. So there's different ways you can put this together, but I absolutely think it's a way to reframe how you should be allocating strategically. Okay. And I asked that question because say, for example, other leveraged funds, daily leveraged funds, like say a three times daily leveraged, just S&P 500 ETF. If you hold that long term, they'll eventually be that drag. And then it's almost, it's not beneficial to hold it very long term. Sometimes it's only a few months. And so that's where I was kind of wondering, like, is there any issues if you hold this fund for five years? Is there any types of drag in performance or volatility or anything? So where that comes from with the daily reset funds is this idea of variance drain. Everyone's heard the example, right? Uh, if you lose 10% of your money, you need to make up 11% to get back to break even. That concept is what we would call variance drain. It's, it's asymmetric in the way the returns compound. When you do a three times levered fund, you basically, the equation is your compound growth rate is your expected return minus one half the variance. Well, the more you lever the fund, that volatility, that variance of the investment goes up and up and up, especially when it's concentrated leverage. And so when those daily reset funds have that sort of variance drag that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, when you look at combining assets that are diversified and you lever them up, you don't get the same variance drag effect because you might actually be first reducing the volatility by adding all that diversification and levering it back up just gets to the same volatility that you might have had in your undiversified portfolio. So it's it's not quite the same thing. But on sort of the same thread, one of the big pushbacks with leverage is that every financial catastrophe in the history of mankind has probably included leverage, right? People, re I remember post 2008, all these investment brochures that said no leverage, no shorting, no derivatives, right? Those were sort of the, the bad words at the time. And it's absolutely true. Leverage is basically at the core of every financial catastrophe. 
But leverage isn't there alone. Leverage is there with its partner concentration, right? I would never, ever, ever say it's a good idea to say, hey, I'm a 100% equity investor. Let me use leverage to go 200% or 300%, right? Using leverage to buy more of the same thing is usually a bad idea. Using leverage to buy something different that can diversify you and zig when your original investment zags, I think that can be a very prudent use of leverage. Again, you can overextend yourself. You need to be careful, but it can be a very prudent use of leverage. So leverage in and of itself is just a tool, right? But you need to be thoughtful about how you use it. Concentrated leverage is, is the dangerous thing. And it's concentrated leverage that creates that variance drag in those daily reset leverage strategies. Okay. And that kind of got into my next question. I was going to ask you on who might this strategy not be good for, or I guess, what are the mistakes people make when implementing it? So I guess you just named one, but are there any other kind of common mistakes people make? Yeah, I'm absolutely biased. You probably don't want to ask the guy who does all the cooking, you know, who shouldn't eat the meal. I obviously think uh, this is a great idea for everyone. Again, the reality is forever. There's sort of two very important points here. Objectively, I can say I think the numbers are better. What's important is whether someone can behaviorally stick with this. If they're uncomfortable with leverage, if they're uncomfortable putting the portfolio together, if they understand stocks and bonds, they don't understand alternatives or they don't understand leverage, don't touch it. Right. Like just do what you're comfortable with. That is the most important thing when it comes to success in your long term investment plan. You need to take enough risk and you need to be comfortable with that risk to earn the returns. If you are going to put yourself in a situation that you're going to capitulate at exactly the wrong time, it's going to do permanent impairment to your portfolio and that doesn't benefit anyone. So first and foremost, it needs to be something people are comfortable with. Again, from there, I think it's all about blending this idea to say, what's the core portfolio I want? How can I introduce diversification to that core portfolio and how much risk am I willing to take? Someone who's a retiree, right? There's a reason we tend to de-risk portfolios into retirement. They no longer have income. They can't suffer large drawdowns or those withdrawals that they're taking create all sorts of sequence risk for them. And so to suddenly take someone who's a very conservative investor and use leverage to layer on a ton of equities in the name of diversification probably doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We don't want to like dramatically move people up the risk curve. If we can say, take someone who's very conservative and add a little bit of equities and a little bit of managed futures and manage to keep them in the same risk level, that's great, right? So we want to be very conscious of it. it's like, what's the appropriate risk level for each investor? What's not only like their risk capacity, but their risk tolerance. Make sure we stay there and just try to build a more diversified portfolio with that constraint in mind. And I guess to me, what's so cool about this strategy is that in normal times, even if there's a large drawdown, if you use a leverage strategy like this, like historically, you are better off in most cases, but it broke down recently. And I kind of want to get into this with you now, because if you look at the funds since 2021, they did horribly. And so I kind of want to talk to you about the factors that affect the effectiveness of this strategy. Yeah. When we say the funds did horribly, let, let's be specific because my fund wasn't even around. But the funds that did horribly, right, were these levered stock and bond funds. So I'm going to pick on PIMCO because they've got a really long track record. They've got a fund called their PIMCO Long Duration Stocks Plus Fund. Buys long duration bonds, corporate bonds, so 20 plus year corporate credit, and then they layer on top S&P exposure. Every dollar you give them, give, giving you a dollar of long duration bonds and, and equity. That portfolio absolutely kicked ass through 2020, right? From its inception through 2020, I think it was top in its category. 
uh, as it should be, because you're getting the returns of both stocks and bonds every year at a period when interest rates were around zero. So the cost of financing was basically nothing. Then 2022 comes around and stocks and bonds sell off simultaneously. And for every dollar you have invested, you are getting $2 of exposure and long duration corporate bonds sold off just as hard as equities. So I think that portfolio at one point last year had a 50% drawdown, if not more. So full pause, that sounds kind of horrible, right? But let me take a step back. If I said to you, okay, you're an all equity investor, take 100% of your money and put it in this. Yes, you were worse off for sure. You would have made a lot more money during the run up. You would have lost a lot more money in 2022. But your risk profile is also higher. Like it probably wasn't a good match from a risk perspective. But if you were a 50-50 investor, right? You invested 50% of your money and 50% of your money in stocks and 50% of your money in bonds. And I said, well, let's replace that with for every hundred dollars, put $50 in this fund. And then we're gonna have $50 in cash that you could invest in, say, managed futures or diversifying alternatives. Yes, the fund was down 50%, but it's down 50% on half your money, right? And so when we look at the actual dollars lost, it would have been the equivalent amount of dollars lost as if 100% of your portfolio was in the 50-50. And so if you use this strategy, right, to use these capital efficient funds that are giving you more exposure for every dollar invested to replace the same number of dollars in your portfolio, and then you're using the extra portfolio sort of canvas you have that's left over to buy diversifying alternatives, you can actually do better. So if you were a 50-50 investor, 50% stocks, 50% bonds, you were probably down like 20% last year, maybe more. If you took 50% of your money and put it in this PIMCO fund, man, that fund was down a lot, but it was half the money. So you were probably down an exact same amount as 50-50. Then if you took the other 50% and put it in managed futures, which were up 20 to 30% last year, you actually ended up way better off, even though that line item of the PIMCO fund was down much more. So to me, it's super critical to think about the dollar exposure you have when you invest in this and make sure that you're using the capital efficiency, not just for getting more right of that concentration, but can we replace existing capital to free up room in our portfolio to buy diversifying alternatives that can do well when our core portfolio isn't going to. Right. And I think my language there might have been a bit harsh because everything was down. Most things were down a lot last year. And I do want to ask you, though, because it does make me wonder just about the relationships, because the strategy, I guess, relies or some of them rely on the fact that stocks and bonds are not perfectly correlated. So what would happen in a world? I guess what could break this strategy is what I'm wondering. Yeah, so. Let's go again to Wisdom Tree as the example, the 90-60 portfolio. Again, if you put 100% of your money in that, you've got a 60-40 levered up 1.5 times. If stocks and bonds go down at the same time and go down significantly, you're going to lose a lot of money. I mean, that's exactly what happened last year, right? And so the risk is typically for that style of portfolio that's concentrated in stocks and bonds. It tends to be inflationary impulses that are the risk. This, maybe the second subtle part of your question is, is there something that could literally make this strategy blow up, right? Could this be like XIV, that, that inverse volatility ETF that literally imploded on a single day, right? Well, for that to happen, you have to think through that you sort of needed to all happen on a single day and your 90-60 portfolio would basically have to lose, if I'm doing my math correctly, I think it's 66%. It would have to have a 66% drawdown in a single day for you to basically blow up. I have to double check my math on that. 
So the likelihood of that portfolio having a 66% drawdown in a single day, I don't want to say that'll never happen because if a nuclear bomb went off, God forbid, yeah, you might see that, right? Crazy things happen in the markets, but it's a really extreme situation because even if you have a really big drawdown one day, the portfolio is going to rebalance itself. It's going to end up selling some stocks, refreshing its collateral for the treasury futures, getting itself back in balance, and then it's reset. You really need like a sudden one day, the market opens down a huge amount, 50%, bonds open down 30, 40, 50% simultaneously for that type of strategy to actually blow up. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. So what are some risk management strategies or things that investors should do if they are implementing this strategy? 
Yeah. So again, using return stacking to double down on the same risks, I think is the big mistake I see. So for example, we'll use the the PIMCO, excuse me, the, the wisdom tree example. If you're a 60, 40 investor, you put two thirds of your money in this wisdom tree product to get effectively 60, 40 exposure. And you have that $33 left over and you put that $33 in stocks, you're probably going to have a bad time. All you've done is levered up way more equity exposure. If you were a 60-40 investor, you were probably there at a risk tolerance reason or risk capacity reason. You've suddenly added a tremendous amount more risk to your portfolio. On the other hand, you take that $33 and you put it in super short-term, high-quality, institutional-grade corporate bonds. That's probably great. You're probably going to clip some some extra coupons. You're probably going to capture a little bit of extra alpha, but it's not like you've dramatically changed where you are on the risk profile. So I think for me, what's really important when you consider what you're stacking on top of your portfolio, it's how is it going to change your overall risk profile and how does that fit with your risk capacity and your risk tolerance? Ideally, you're trying to blend things that zig and zag at different times, but correlations are by no means perfect. Past returns are really predictive of, of future results. And so I think you really need to think about from an economics perspective, you know, why should something behave a certain way? Why should it be different from stocks? Why should it be different from bonds? And, and what's sort of the tail risk that these things could all behave the same way? How long can that happen for? And, and can my portfolio survive it? And then one thing is there's lots of, I guess, expectation, at least from the guests that I've spoken to about how things could get worse still with, I guess, the total stock market going down, earnings needing to downgrade a bit. And so would this be a bad time to get into a leverage strategy? Could it be a bad time if someone's fearful that the market would go down more? Yeah, so let's maybe walk through two or three examples here. Uh, if you're a 100% equity investor and you want to replace that with like Wisdom Tree or PIMCO's products that are going to you know, give you the same amount of equity and then layer on some bonds, that might not be a great idea if you think there's more inflation risk to come, right? If you think the Fed's going to keep tightening or you think this is going to be an inflationary recession where stocks and bonds sell off at the same time, yeah, that would be a bad idea. On the other hand, if you free up capital in your portfolio to layer in something like managed futures that have historically done well during prolonged equity sell-offs or inflationary bear markets, that might be a great time to use a little leverage. Right. So again, it really comes back to what you're implementing, what we've been really excited about. And, and the reason we brought it to market a product that for every dollar you give us, it's a dollar of bonds and a dollar of managed futures is because there are a lot of the investors we work with who just start with that 60 40 framework. The reality is we work with a lot of financial advisors on a dollar weighted basis. They tend to be dealing with pre or early retirees who just tend to have a 60 40 portfolio. They looked at 2022 as a wake up call to say, if, if we enter a decade of prolonged inflation, this is probably a problem for our retirement planning. And so to be able to replace some bonds with a product that maintains the bond exposure and then overlays managed futures where managed futures have historically done rather well during inflationary environments and done well during equity crises. It makes them feel more confident in the financial plan that they've laid out, that the, hopefully the drawdowns are going to be less severe and that the spending plan is actually more achievable. So again, I think it's very dependent upon what you're incorporating. And I, and I cannot advocate enough that if you're going to use this concept of return stacking, it's not to add the same risks you already have. You really want to think about what diversifiers you can put into your portfolio. 
Right. And I do want to ask you about the commodity return stacking funds out there, because I know there's one, I can't remember the ticker offhand, but what are your thoughts on that? Is that an efficient way to get commodity exposure? I'm actually, so the one that I'm aware of is the Wisdom Tree, I believe the ticker's GDE, where it's for every dollar you give them, it's 90 cents of equities plus 90 cents of gold is the one I'm I'm aware of. Yes, if you like commodities, I think that can be totally fine. Uh, if you're someone who wants gold in your portfolio, maybe you like the Harry Brown permanent portfolio or something like that, where you, you want a constant allocation to gold, this can be a thoughtful way to introduce it. Again, just making sure you understand or have uh, some sort of concept of when you think gold will and will not perform relative to the other assets in your portfolio. I will say personally, I am not a huge fan of commodities or gold as a standalone asset class. I much prefer managed futures when it comes to things like inflation. We use it as a very big umbrella term, but there's all different types of inflation, right? There's monetary inflation, there's supply chain driven inflation, there's demand side inflation. And the way that those sorts of inflations end up getting expressed in global asset class prices are very different, right? When you look at 2022, the way inflation played out, the best trades were along the dollar and short bonds. It actually wasn't even, I mean, you was a little bit long oil at the beginning of the year, but gold never responded to the type of inflation that we had, right? And so for me, a dynamic strategy like managed futures that can adapt to whatever trends are presenting themselves in the market is my preferred way to try to build in some resiliency in my portfolio to inflation, but to each their own. And, and again, what I love is that folks like us and Wisdom Tree are bringing these building blocks to market so that people can build the portfolios they're confident in. I have had a few guests talk about how they believe we could be seeing these waves of inflation coming back. And so in that context, then what do you think is a prudent way to invest if that reality would happen? Yeah, if you look at the 1970s, probably one of the scariest charts is you look at year over year CPI changes from the 1970s and, and you get this early wave late 60s, early 70s, where inflation crests at about 6% and comes back down. And then you get this second wave a couple of years later where it crests up around 12% and then comes back down. And then the third wave at the end of the decade into the early 1980s, where it goes up to, I think, to 16, 17%. And that would just be brutal psychologically, economically, from a business planning perspective, that's very difficult. Now, there's a, a large number of arguments as to why you saw sort of saw that three wave inflation cycle in the 70s relating to sort of the way monetary risk was managed, getting off the gold standard, understanding how fiscal and monetary policy work together, geopolitical instability. Like there's arguments why that shouldn't happen now, but there is a historical precedent, right? There are these bullwhip effects that exist in the economy that are tough to control, that can lead to these push and pull of supply and demand that can lead to inflationary impulses. Arguably one of the reasons why the Fed may stay sort of more hawkish higher for longer than I think a lot of people forecast, even with a lot of people feeling out an earnings recession. But to go back to your question, to me, again, the best way to play that risk is for me personally, a strategic asset allocation to manage futures that I hold stocks and bonds. And then I try to use this concept of return stacking to overlay managed futures on top of my portfolio. And the last question I'll ask you is if you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice to just help them become better investors, what would that be? There is a phenomenal piece of literature 
written by Cliff Asness from AQR that's called, I believe it's called Seven Lessons for Investing Big Money for the Long Run. And he originally wrote it back, I think it was 2009. I found one copy on the internet of it ever. I don't even think AQR has it published on their website. But if you Google that, you should be able to find a PDF of it. And the reason I love it, it, it was originally written for institutions, but it is some of the most common sense, basic reminders about investing. Like you have to take risk to earn reward. Like it's a fundamental idea. A diversified portfolio is inherently better than an undiversified portfolio, right? It's just like these very basic seven ideas that I think sometimes, especially me who lives in a very wonky quantitative world, I can sort of like get off and stuck in the land of esoterica, like to just reground myself with these core principles and say, investing shouldn't be that hard stick to these sort of like core basic ideas, get the big muscle movements right, and you're going to be okay. To me, I think I would urge readers to go read that. I think it's just a great foundational piece of wisdom from someone who's been as a track record as a tremendously successful investor. That is awesome. I'm definitely going to go search for that after this. I love Cliff's work. So thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. I'll, I will make sure I send you a copy so that at least you can have it. And before I let you go today, though, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, your work and that everything you do? Sure. So you can learn more about our ETFs at returnstackedetfs.com. And then you can find me mostly on Twitter at C. Hofstein, where my wife would tell you I am there way too frequently. That sounds great. I will make sure to include all of those in the show notes. I want to thank you again for coming on today, Corey. Thank you so much, Rebecca. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, we study markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.